Shalom, shalom, friends. Great to see you. Thank you so much for being here. Sorry for the technical difficulties we had, but we're so glad you're here um, on the live stream and beyond. And we are so happy to celebrate tonight these great, um, these great young leaders who are creating real change around the world, in Germany, in Trinidad, in New York City, and beyond. And this is a really special time for Elitzedek as we are embarking on major actions, humanitarian relief, um, as, it, as it emerges with major humanitarian relief work as it, um, as it is engaged on the border here. Um, you may have heard the news today of what's happening with the end of Title 42 and those who are crossing the border right now and the extraordinary needs that we are witnessing. And in addition to that action, um, and we have groups coming here throughout this winter break coming up, we've got a group of six women from New York City arriving in just two days. We're very excited for that. In addition to that, we have consistent learning that is happening, classes every week, sometimes multiple times a week from great scholars around the world. And really at the center of this work is our amazing work with young fellows, our fellows who are in high school and college, post-college, um, the fellows we just had down here at the border over Sukkot with Nick and with Eddie and the like. And we are so excited to continue our J.J. Greenberg Memorial uh, Fellowship um, for our Uri uh fellows that we honor as great young leaders that are emerging. Um, and so tonight we're going to celebrate three of those. But before we get to that, Let's hear a little Torah from Rabbi Joseph Talishkin. So honored and pleased to be able to speak at this event honoring J.J. Greenberg. I have forever been so close with his parents. Yitz was my favorite, most influential teacher during my four years at Yeshiva University. Lou has become a beloved friend since then. And I love J.J., but I only wish I had had more and more time with him. So in speaking about him just this morning with my wife, she reminded me of how kind he had been to our son, Ben. And a number of times when Ben had shown up at parties, and he could sometimes be a little out of it, his choice of dress, how JJ helped him redress so that he could be part of the group. And that was part of a small part, the smallest part of JJ's what I call moral imagination. He could put himself into the feelings of another person and he could understand what it would be like for Ben to feel out of it or to feel rejected. And in the book I'm writing now on moral imagination, my basic point is this, that in the past century, extraordinary advances have been made in medicine, science, technology, because an individual or a group utilize the full resources of their intellectual imagination to solve a problem that had previously been thought to be insoluble. But people don't always exercise the same level of moral imagination to come up with a problem and a solution to that problem that doesn't occur to other people, but occurs to them because their minds are more creative and more attuned to the morality. I'll just throw out a number of examples. A story I remember reading about Rabbi Yosheber Soloveitchik, not the more recent Rabbi Soloveitchik, Allah Shalom, 
But his great-grandfather, who was known as the Beis Halevi for a book he had written, and he was once approached by a man, the rabbi was sitting with a number of his students, and he was approached by a man shortly before Passover, and he said, Rabbi, is it permitted for me to use milk instead of wine at the Passover Seder? The rabbi you know, immediately asked, is it an issue of health? And the man said, no, I don't have the money. He gave the man 25 rubles. He said, now go and make a Seder like all other Jews. When the man left, one of his students said to him, Rabbi, three or four rubles would have been sufficient for the wine. And he said, don't you understand? If he wanted to use milk, it means he had no money for meat. He probably didn't have money for anything. I remember hearing that story and being moved by it. You got to think in terms of not just what the person's asking, but what their need is. But the reason stories are so powerful is because they really can influence not only how we react emotionally, but how we behave. behave. So I had heard that story and I was moved by it. And about two weeks later, a elderly woman, a Holocaust survivor, who was a particularly dear friend of Devorah and mine, was speaking with us about a terrible back pain she was suffering. And she had spoken about it earlier, but obviously they were accelerating and making her very uncomfortable. And I remember I said to her, is there no medication, nothing that they can prescribe that can help you? And she said, yes, but even with government aid, it's still $60. That night, Devorah and I gave her a check for $1,000. And I'm not trying to present myself as being the most generous tzaddik. I'm not, Devorah's not. We're good people, but we wouldn't have normally done it. And I wouldn't have done it had I not heard that story. Because of that story, what obviously I, Devorah, most people of decent hearts would have, of course, given her the $60 to buy the medication. But because of that story, I started thinking on a different plane. I started thinking, if this woman is in such pain and doesn't have $60, who knows what else she's depriving herself of? Well, the story really affected our behavior very, very much so. There are all sorts of areas in where people use moral imagination. In Teddy Roosevelt's autobiography, he tells a story, you know, and uh, people don't commonly know this about Teddy Roosevelt. In 1895 and 1896, only a few years before he became president, he was the police commissioner of New York City. And there were a lot of Germans at that time in New York. I'm not talking about German Jews, German non-Jews. And they were bringing over a man named Rector Alwart, who was a preacher from Germany, but... If you look him up on Google, you'll find out he was a very, very big anti-Semite. Worst sorts of Jew hatred. The Jews in New York in 1895-96 were not yet as large a group as the Jews became, but there were already substantial numbers. And they approached Roosevelt as the police commissioner. And they asked him, don't give this guy a speaking permit. And if he does speak somewhere, don't give him police protection. Roosevelt thought for a moment, and then he said to them, he said, I'm not sure what you're asking is legal. And even if it's legal, 
I don't think it's wise. Our goal should be not to prevent this man from speaking, but to make him ridiculous. And Roosevelt assigned, as he writes in his autobiography, 20 policemen to guard the guy during his speeches. And all the 20 police were Jews. I think the irony was pretty profound. I'll give you another example of moral imagination. This time exercised by, by Shimon Peres, who was uh, at the time Israel's prime minister. And many of us, those of us who certainly are above 50, will recall, others might have heard about it, when Ronald Reagan was president of the United States, he generally got along quite well with the Jewish community. He was quite strong on certain issues that really mattered to Jews like Israel. Many Jews obviously differed with some of his conservative politics. I was one of those who was an admirer because I think he really played a role in bringing down communism in the Soviet Union. Uh, but forgetting that issue, he did do something that got Jews very upset. The West German president invited Rosa, uh, invited uh, Reagan to accompany him on the 40th anniversary of the end of World War II to visit a Nazi cemetery in the city of Bitburg. And Reagan consented. He didn't fully thought through the issue, but he thought it would be a symbolic act except that it very quickly came out that among the soldiers buried in Bitburg were not regular German soldiers who had been drafted into the army and who just sort of felt they had to fight, were 47 SS officers. And certainly up, in, up until near the end of the war, SS officers who were the worst, the lowest of the low, the builders of the concentration camps, the murderers of large numbers of Jews, were all volunteers. These were not people who were drafted maybe against their will. These were people who wanted to go in and wanted to commit murder. And Elie Wiesel publicly appealed to Reagan, your place is with the victims, not with the killers. And Reagan felt that because he had made this commitment, he was really being pressured by uh, the West German president, and he was in an embarrassing spot. And you can imagine, by the way, it was not only Jews who were upset, veterans of foreign wars, you know, were also upset. But Jews were the most vocal about it. At the time, Shimon Peres was the prime minister of Israel, and he was in a ticklish situation. The United States was certainly Israel's most significant ally. It provided Israel with many important needs, and it was it was a great supporter of Israel in international forums. So he was asked his opinion. And what made the situation so delicate was if he attacked Reagan the way so many other Jewish organizations were doing, insensitive to anti-Semitism, you know, insensitive on, on the issue of the Holocaust, he could well alienate a very, very important ally. On the other hand, what Reagan did was wrong. Harris obviously must have thought through what he was going to say, and what he said was brilliant, and how to offer criticism. He said, when a friend makes a mistake, 
the friend remains a friend, the mistake remains a mistake. In a simple sentence, he articulated, obviously he thought what Reagan did was wrong, but sometimes people who we otherwise really like can do something wrong. And that doesn't destroy the whole moral bank account that they have. And I was very always struck by how he did it. I'll give one more just interesting episode if I'm going on too long so this one might get cut. In 1968, Shirley Chisholm became the first black woman ever elected to the House of Representatives. In a book I wrote some years ago, a biography of the Lubavitcher Rebbe, a book called Rebbe, I tell of a remarkable encounter that the Rebbe had with Shirley Chisholm, which Chisholm claimed affected her profoundly. But I also came across another very interesting episode with Chisholm. In 1972, she entered the Democratic presidential primaries. There were seven people running in those primaries. Uh, and she said at the time, she said, I know I'm not going to get the nomination as a black and as a woman, but I want to establish a precedent. George McGovern was the one who ended up getting the nomination. One of the other seven people running in the primaries was George Wallace, the infamous governor of Alabama, the man who was most famous for his statement, segregation today, segregation tomorrow, segregation forever. It was during that 1972 campaign that in Baltimore, a man tried to kill George Wallace and he shot him five times. All five bullets entered in the lower half of Wallace's body and Wallace was for the rest of his life in a wheelchair and uh, you know, and obviously couldn't walk. About three weeks after the shooting, Shirley Chisholm showed up at Wallace's bedside in the hospital. Wallace looked up in shock and he said, Shirley Chisholm, what are you doing here? And she said to him, I don't want to see what happened to you happen to anybody. And she took Wallace's hand. Both of them regarded themselves as religious Christians and they prayed together. Wallace's daughter was present, and she said, that act started the process by which my father became transformed. A couple of years later, Chisholm sponsored a bill in Congress that the minimum wage laws, which had never been applied to domestic workers, should now be applied to domestic workers. Wallace lobbied Southern congressmen to pass that bill. And Wallace then went a couple of years later to the Montgomery Baptist Church, where Martin Luther King had been. And in probably the most unusual speech of his whole political career, he said, and now I'm rephrasing it a bit, but this is it. I don't have the quote exactly in front of me. He said, through the terrible pains I've gone through, I've also come to understand some of the pain I, am, I brought to black people. And I'm here to beg your forgiveness. Many people were cynical about it, you know, because Wallace continued to run then again uh, for political office. But John Lewis, often thought of sort of as the conscience of the Senate, of the Congress, was not cynical. And he was a person whose skull had been fractured, 
by the police that Wallace had sent out in Selma, Alabama. And he said, I think he's sincere. And there was a woman working on Shirley Chisholm's campaign. And she was angry. And she's now a congresswoman uh, in the L.A. area of Arbor Lee. And she was angry. And she said to Chisholm, how did you go? Why would you go see George Wallace? And I must admit, you know, I also identified with that. And Chisholm said, you know, you never know when an act of kindness can change everything. And moral imagination goes into that. I have an incredible story about how a Jewish woman reached out to Charles Dickens. And Dickens truly repented that he had damaged the Jews by the character of Fagin. It's a remarkable, remarkable story. How sometimes reaching out to someone who you feel did an unforgivable act, but reaching out and offering the possibility of a forgiveness and a correction of the earlier deed can change everything. I'm honored to offer this in honor of J.J. Greenberg, Allah Shalom, because I think he was one of those people who understood how acts of kindness can change everything. Thank you very much. Well, um, uh, I'm, I'm so grateful to Rabbi Tillerson for that teaching, and it sums up so clearly what it is we're trying to do here with the power of moral imagination and educational and leadership experiences that help us to think about how we can be more, how we can do more, how little acts can change the world. So as we're going to hear now from Rabbi Yitz Greenberg and Blue Greenberg, um, we're going to hear a little bit about this honor we're, we're giving tonight to three extraordinary uh, people, Ruben in Germany. Who, it's after midnight there, so he couldn't join us. <laughs> um, and uh, how he in Germany is fighting extremism and fascism and hate and anti-Semitism um, in various ways in Europe. Um, and Abigail, who was in our fellowship and has been just a great leader on campus at Stern and um, has been involved in our Tava Yosher around New York and has just... Um, been passionate and engaging her peers uh, in all ways possible. And Nick Jagdio, who was here a part of our uh, our fellowship at the border, interviewing and engaging and inspiring and working on logistics in the, in the deepest way. So let's hear from um, my dearest teachers, Rabbi Yitz Greenberg and Blue, who um, had to experience the unimaginable of losing their son, JJ, a blessed memory, the unimaginable and what they view as the highest tribute to his memory is helping to cultivate a modern orthodoxy in um, in his memory, a modern orthodoxy that is past-rooted and future-looking, that is particularistic and universalistic, that loves Am Yisrael and loves all people, that understands the tragedies of Jewish history and uses those as well to cultivate empathy for the suffering of all people. Let's hear from Yitz and Blue. It's a privilege for me, Yitz Greenberg, and for my wife, Blue Greenberg, to participate in this ceremony awarding the J.J. Greenberg Award, Memorial Award, to Young Leadership of Oriel Tzedek. I'll start by thanking Oriel Tzedek and Rav Shmoli for the amazing work that they do, that you do, 
they represent not only the Torah's passion and commitment to Ben Adam that the mitzvot are not just our service of God, but our service and our obligations to our fellow human beings. And this is, in a way, a neglected aspect of Torah. And Uriel Tzedek has given us, on behalf of the whole Orthodox community, representation of passion and commitment that's truly an important honoring of Torah and its values in the real world. We're grateful for that. And us, this memorial award is a kind of a Kaddish, and I'd like to explain what that means. It's well known that Kaddish is the prayer we say in memory and mourning people we have lost, that we have loved and lost. And for us, it is our beloved J.J. Greenberg, who was taken from us in an, an accident in Israel and whom we miss to this day. It's also well known that Kaddish doesn't have a word about death or any aspect of mourning in the prayer itself. What the Kaddish is, is a summary of Judaism, and its key phrase and its key statement is that we are working together to create God's kingdom, and may that kingdom be established in the lifetime of each person who is saying the Kaddish. What's God's kingdom? It's the messianic vision of the Yahadut and of the Torah, of Tikkun Olam, that this world can be corrected, that according to the divine promise, if we join in in this partnership, in this breed, we can overcome poverty and hunger, injustice, oppression, and every sort of discrimination, war, and sickness. That's our vision and our dream to fight and overcome all these enemies of life so that life will win in this world. So what's the point of making that the mourner's prayer? It's because when this person died, you might say, the world is not redeemed. The world still has injustice, still has unfairness, still has war and sickness and poverty. And so you'd say this person's life was a failure, or you say that Torah's dream was not realized and is defeated. The answer is no. The answer is that a person stands up who loved that person, who understands that person, who stands for the values of that person and says it's not over because before they died, they inspired me or I walk in their footsteps and I will carry on the mission of Tikkun Olam. I will carry on the fight against injustice or poverty, the fight against sickness and war. And before this life is not wasted, it is in fact not yet complete. The work goes on through others who love and represent the values of this person. That's the meaning of the J.J. Greenberg. We have lost him and nothing can make up for that. But the knowledge that young people with passion and commitment and the zeal for justice are out there fighting to make a better world, overcome invulnerability and the exploitation of workers, that to us means that his life is not finished and his work goes on. And so looking at your individual bios, Abigail, Ruven, and Nick, um, I have the overwhelming feeling that how JJ would have loved to engage you in conversation about amazing things that you are doing. And we are very honored and feel privileged to make this award, enable this award uh, in his memory. 
because it so much stands for all the things that he stood for. I know Abigail, we must have many connections. I think I know the Zucker family and um, from Far Rockaway, uh, and certainly the YU and, and Midrashit connections, uh, and the fact that you're working on racial justice and immigrant rights in addition to everything else that you're doing, Tavayoshar, would be um, something of truly vital importance. Ruvain, um, I would love to have a conversation with you about a communication scientist does, but more relevant to this award that you're working to fight anti-Semitism and right-wing extremism in Europe and organizing Jewish students uh, to, I'm sure, follow in that, along that path is very meaningful. And Nick, you have a certainly a geographical history, but I did not know until I read your bio, actually, that Trinidad was one of the countries that took in, that welcomed Jewish immigrants after the Shoah. And uh, it reminds me of how little we still know about many aspects of the Shoah. So I appreciate your involvement in Holocaust and Jewish studies and, um, and uh, your work in UN rights. And you're, perhaps we're neighbors in Israel and Jerusalem, and we would have, love to have a chance to meet you and all of you in person one day. Thank you again. So in this connection, we want to say a word about Rav Shmuley Yankowitz himself. <clears throat> He's an unbelievable living role model of Torah at its best, of Torah that seeks out the marginal, the suffering, Daka Ushval Ruach, Isaiah says, God is close to those who are oppressed and have humble spirit. <clears throat> he looks out for those who need help. He extends himself with unlimited energy to bring chesed and kindness and love to fellow human beings. He's a pioneer and, a, and a, one who pushes the limits and the envelope of the Jewish values and Jewish thoughts so it should be more embracing of more people, Jewish and non-Jewish, strong and weak, all who need his attention. In our eyes, he's a hero. He's really a man of heroic proportions. It always amazes us to see the next enterprise that he undertakes. He doesn't stop. He does, looks for chesed, for tzedakah, for justice, for rahamim. Really, he's a significant hero of our time. The Hillam says, God, who is the protector of Israel, never sleeps or slumbers because he's busy doing all these good things. Shmuley imitates God. I don't know if he ever sleeps or slumbers, but he certainly is constantly looking for new ways of helping and serving and protecting and aiding the unfortunate, those who need help. And on top of that, he's such a wonderful person. He's down to earth, no sense of his own greatness, very modest. And very special, special human being. In short, we love him. I mean. Those, those very over-the-top final words, which were not supposed to be shared there, <laughs> were um, uh, the words I would use to describe them. Uh, somebody asked me recently, who are the gadolium of our time? Um, and certainly it's, it's them um, and what they've done for many, many decades. 
And so it's a great honor to have them as great, um, uh, amazing partners in our early aesthetic work and Torah Chaim programs. And I'm going to pass it over to my great colleague, uh, Eddie Chavez Calderon, to, to conclude with some uh, closing words about our, our awards recipients tonight. Definitely. Thank you so much, Rabbi Shmuley. I, I am so honored to be able to be at my fourth year here at Uri Tzedek and being able to create some tangible change in our community, work with various communities to bring um, change and impact in our communities. And I have the honor of working with Rav Shmuley. Um, I, I, I feel so much uh, blessing and warmth in my heart to be able to know our award recipients, uh, two of them closely, being able to work on on the streets with uh, running around with Avigail um, and, and really fighting for workers' rights and with the, the Tav Hayosher and seeing the change of, of, of people's emotions when you talk to them and you're willing to listen to them and you're willing to share ideas of, of um, basic um, worker rights and, and human rights and, and really elevating Torah and elevating each and every one of our works and really impacting the chesed that each and every one of our award recipients brings in, the kindness, the fighting for justice and kindness, and the the, the consistency of doing that. One of my favorite stories is the story of Rav Akiva when he's talked about the consistency of a water droplet and how it breaks through a rock. And the consistency of fighting for justice with our award recipients is phenomenal. Nick, I can't, I can't keep uh, praising your work and, and looking at the history of Trinidad and how it accepted uh, hundreds and hundreds of Jewish migrants. And you not only have talked about that, but you have worked up on that here in, in the border and, and ensuring that our, our, our continuous fellows learn about that work. It, it was in, in deep gratitude. And I know with Ruben, his work against anti-Semitism really brings everything full circle here at Early Tzedek and what we do, that we combat uh, hate and we stand for justice. And that includes anti-Semitism as it's rising right now. So it brings me a great honor to be here with all of you. I know we have some of our amazing board members on this call as well, as well as others and countless other folks listening who uh, make this work possible, who allow us to continue to have our Jewish ethics and our hearts and to walk with, uh, I recently heard uh, Rabbi Mark, uh, who was recently in town, share that we he believes in street Torah, and I truly believe that Uri Litzedek brings Torah to the streets to be able to advocate with each and every one of those values and ethics. Thank you so much. Beautiful, beautiful. Friends, um, I thank you so much for joining. Thank you to our great board members here, Dr. Lakshin and Evan Farber. It's great to see Eric Green here, a great activist and thinker. And sorry we went over time, and sorry for the technical difficulties. We know most of you are uh, listening to on the recording side. And so you probably won't even notice the impact of that at all. But I want to just give a shout out to two great classes we already had this week. Rav Yuval Shurlo gave an amazing class. You can find the recording on YouTube or podcasts. And today, Rav Anita Lissa Thomas uh, uh, Newborn uh, um, I gave a great class on Hanukkah. You can also join us on Wednesday with Omri, uh, a class with Omri and one with Rav Aryeh on Wednesday as well. Every week, opportunities to act, and to learn. Mazel tov to our amazing recipients around the world tonight. Thank you, Rav Yitz and Blue Greenberg and Rav Talishkin. And thank you to all of you. Chanukah Sameach.